five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to the Space Q podcast. This is the third episode of the Space Q Summer Series, which today features NASA's Raymond Clinton Jr., Associate Director of the Science and Technology Office at the Marshall Space Flight Center. The topic is In Space Manufacturing and Lunar Construction Technology Development at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. Dr. Clinton takes us on a brief journey of what's been done by NASA to date and then discusses what NASA is doing now and what the future of in-space and lunar manufacturing might be. Listen in. Okay, thanks, Richard, and uh, thanks, everybody, for joining in. First, I'd like to thank my co-authors, Dr. Tracy Prater. Uh, Tracy is the ISM in-space manufacturing deputy manager. Mike Fisk, who is the Impact Olympus Element Lead, and Dr. Jennifer Edmondson, who is both the Impact Project Manager and the Impact Materials Development Element Lead. Let's go to chart two, please. Okay, uh, so this afternoon we're going to talk about Marshall's history in in-space manufacturing and in-space or extraterrestrial construction and sort of run through the chronology from the beginnings of those activities to uh, to how Marshall achieved a, a position of leadership in these two areas today. Hey, next chart, please. Okay, as Richard mentioned, the first experiment that, that we conducted at Marshall on the uh, reduced gravity aircraft, NASA's KC-135 was in 1999, and that was a fused deposition modeler. You can see the principal investigator there, Ken Cooper, uh, on board the KC-135 floating above the floor. And on the right-hand side are the really as-designed versus as-built experimental um, test articles that he made. And you you can see um, they sag a little bit, and that's more than likely because when the aircraft finishes its 25 seconds worth of uh, microgravity environment, it has a 2G pullout, so that does affect uh, how the uh, how the articles turned out. However, it did prove that the fused deposition modeler would work and could print in a microgravity environment. Uh, Kent went on to recommend further testing be done in a full microgravity environment, uh, either on shuttle or on space station, and we worked to do that, but this was initially a center director's discretionary fund, or what industry calls IRED, and we were not successful to get follow-on funding for his pioneering work. However, in 2004, the Office of Biological and Physical Research was revamping their portfolio to be more relevant to space exploration. And so we had an opportunity there to participate in that, and we recommended the establishment of in-situ fabrication and repair program element. Let's go to the next slide. I'm not going to talk the details of this, but what I would like you to recognize are the different areas that we proposed and started work in uh, for in-space fabrication and repair. That's, as the title suggests, fabrication, repair, habitat structures, non-destructive evaluation of those articles that we produce on orbit, 
and recycling. It's a broad vision, and we actually had a lot of work started in that area. And again, this was back in the 2004 timeframe. We'll talk more about these and, and what they did a little bit later on, but I'll, I'll kind of kill the surprise now. Uh, the vision for space exploration came along in 2005, and across the agency, the Office of Biological and Physical Research took significant hits. At Marshall, we took a 90% cut in our budget, which pretty much terminated all of these activities. We had a few that hung on for a few years, uh, but by 2007, all these activities had been terminated, along with most of the uh, microgravity material science program, and it's never fully recovered. Okay, let's go to the next slide. In, in 2011, uh, Bill Cirillo and his systems analysis group uh, did an assessment of the space station maintenance logistics model. And you can see there on the screen that at any given time, there would be about 13,000 kilograms of spare parts stored on orbit and about one and a half times that amount stored on the ground. Now, that's a lot of mass to be taking to space station and just waiting there for something to fail, especially when the data showed that it was less than 500 kilograms of spare part failures occurred every year. Let's go to the next chart and understand what we have learned from Space Station. We're on page six. So what, okay, thank you, Richard. So what we know is that we will need a sufficiently large portfolio of spare parts to keep the astronauts safe. When they need a spare, it needs to be there. They need to have it. However, we don't know which parts are going to fail or when they're going to fail. We also know that a very high percentage of the spares that are on space station will never be used. They're there just in case, and they're there for the astronauts' safety. I think we've got an open mic somewhere. So while for space station we have the opportunity for resupply, we have the opportunity for fix and fly, and we have the opportunity for a quick abort. For deep space missions, we won't have any of these capabilities. So it's clear that the current logistics strategy that we have for space station will not be effective for deep space missions. But we do believe, and we'll talk later on, how in-space manufacturing can address these issues in the logistics and the mass reduction capabilities and also provide for increased safety for the astronauts on deep space missions. Okay, let's go to chart seven. Okay, fast forward now to 2014. This was actually the first step that we made in printing parts off planet. Uh, this picture in the center is Butch Wilmore, and that's become sort of the icon and representative of the in-space manufacturing program at Marshall. And Butch is holding his ratchet handle pretty happy about that. You can see on either side some of the, uh, the mechanical property test articles uh, and tools that we printed just to show that it's capable to, to print tools that have some sort of use uh, and also to get the properties of this. And what we learned in testing the properties 
was that there did appear to be a difference between flight and ground. However, when we started the print, we had issues with the nozzle to tray difference, uh, the offset difference. And as we look back at that, we did some ground test and found when we did the ground test, that affected the print. So we did another step, phase two on orbit. And what we learned there by recreating the offset to, uh, to replicate what we saw in the first phase and then setting the optimal, uh, optimal tip offset, we produced good properties. And we also mimicked the properties that we got from the bad setting. So what we learned from that is that there are no observation, no observable effects from microgravity uh, on the printing for the plastic materials. And just a, a real quick story behind that. The guys that made in space were monitoring the, the comm channel to uh, to space station, and they overheard Butch say that uh, he'd, he'd lost his ratchet handle. And we'd always planned to to send up to, to send up a a part file from the ground, and just prove that we could do that on demand. So the guys heard that. They got busy designing a ratchet handle, uh, got it through the payload safety review at JSC for Space Station, and printed it in less than a week, which is record time. So there you see Bush holding his ratchet handle, and, uh, again, he's pretty happy about that. Okay, let's go to the next chart, please. From those very simple beginnings, we've grown – an in-space manufacturing portfolio project. And I'll just go around the, the little bubbles and describe, uh, they really pretty much go in chronological order, uh, clockwise. We talked about the first printer that, that Butch is operating there. Made in space used the lessons learned from the first printer to move forward with the second printer that would print multiple plastic materials, had a larger build volume, uh, improved monitoring, and some remote handling. That's still on Space Station, and it is a commercial system. Made in Space owns it. We also, from the 2005 or 2004 ISPAR, we recognized that we needed to be able to recycle materials. That would be a tremendous benefit for the logistics. So Tethers Unlimited developed a recycler and a printer that flew on Space Station. Uh, it uh, it did run into some problems on the recycling, but they were able to show that the printer did work. And I believe, uh, Tracy, you can correct me on this, but I believe they've also demonstrated that they can, can bond two ends of the filament together. Yeah, that's uh, And that was called – thanks, Tracy. And that was called uh, the refabricator, and it's due to come back down in the fall. And, and we will take a look at that at Marshall and see if we can uh, – have some lessons learned from that on why we had problems with extrusion. I believe Maiden Space also has a recycler that they have sent to a space station. Again, that was a commercial payload, and uh, it's also run into some problems. Um, we also recognize that packaging represents a, a large amount of waste material on space station. So we put out a solicitation, um, and a couple companies uh, responded and were selected. That's Tethers Unlimited and Cornerstone to take the packaging material and convert it to feedstock. Now, I always thought that Tethers took a very innovative approach. Uh, they decided they would just make the packaging material out of feedstock. And, it, you know, it turns out that they, they created a new product where you can tailor the strength and substance that you need for your payload uh, with the packing material that they created. 
And then Cornerstone uh, had a uh, thermally reversible copolymer that they added. You can see the, uh, the pink bags there, the electrostatic films that uh, is used for electronics. And they were successful in being able to convert that to a printed material. We also started focusing on in space uh, metals fabrication. Uh, four different uh, companies, four different technologies there. Made in space with the Vulcan used the wire arc technology. Ultratech used ultrasound joining for thin films. TechShot used a wire feedstock with uh, induction heating to heat it up and then a low power laser to, uh, to tack it down. And Tethers used a similar ingot forming uh, with uh, CNC machining to get to the final shape, kind of like they did for the refabricator. Printed electronics. At the time, uh, this is a, one of the very, very early activities that we had in printed electronics. Uh, and this is an area that's really grown, and I'll talk some more about that in just a second, for printed electronics at Marshall and a lot of partners out there in the industry. Uh, medical and health. And that's also work that was done by Tethers Unlimited, and they leveraged a lot of the um, design and functionality of the refabricator. And, and what they did there was to add a dry heat sterilizer to be able to uh, fabricate polymer parts for food and medical-grade applications. Again, that was another lesson learned from Space Station, that the waste from food and medical applications is, is a surprisingly large percentage of the waste on Space Station. So why not take advantage of that and convert that material to feedstock? So that was the Erasmus program, and that's now on hold until we, uh, we figure out what happened to refabricator. And then finally is Fab Lab. Uh, that's an activity that we started a couple of years ago, which we expect to become sort of the cornerstone of this program going forward. And that that is a solicitation that we ask to increase the, uh, the bill volume to at least six inches cube. And we want autonomous handling and ground remote, remote commanding uh, specifically to take care of some of the simple operations like uh, taking the printed part off of the print tray. Uh, also, we want inspection capabilities, and we need to be able to print multiple materials, both metals and plastics. And I'll talk more about that on the following charts. Okay, that was the initial program as we have formed it, and it has morphed over the last couple of years to look like this. Okay, now we have five different focus areas. On-demand manufacturing of metals, and we just talked about the uh, the beginnings of that activity, recycling and reuse. Again, we've talked about that. On-demand manufacturing of electronics, and I'll talk more about that on the following couple of charts. And also a design database. Uh, what, what we hope to get there is a, a simple push to print, and we're working toward that end. And then the newest member of the family is 3D printing with regular simulant with a polymer uh, binder. And that's a feedstock blend, and that's something that's being done by, uh, by Maiden Space. And all of these activities will be done on ISS as a test bed with the obvious looking forward to deep space exploration. Next chart, please. Okay, we're now on chart 10 for everybody that's following that. We're going to talk a little bit, a little bit, excuse me, a little bit more in depth about uh, manufacturing of, of metals. We have uh, two organizations right now that are working in that. I've mentioned both of those. TechShot, however, from their uh, first experiment that I just described a minute ago that was called Simple, 
Uh, now they've moved to a bound metal deposition activity, which means you have the the metal particulate bound in a, a plastic binder, and you essentially print it like you would a, a plastic wire feed printer. Then you heat that up, take the binder out, and center the final part. That's the approach that they've taken. Wire arc uh, additive manufacturing is made in space Vulcan system. Uh, they also have on board a, a CNC to machine the part to final configuration. They have inspection methodologies. Uh, both of them do, uh, both tech shot and made in space. And we're looking forward to putting this hopefully uh, on the space station in the fairly near term. We want both of these systems to go and have an opportunity for a technology demonstration on space station because looking forward, as I said earlier, uh, we look to these systems to become the cornerstone of manufacturing in space for deep space exploration. Uh, we'd like to see them on Gateway. We'd like to see something like this on the lunar surface and certainly on the transit to and surface operations on Mars. Okay, let's go to chart 11, please. For recycling and, and reuse, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because we've already talked about the refabricator. Uh, the other thing that I'll mention about Cornerstone is that they've also developed a, an in-process monitoring for the filament that they, that they produce. So when they recycle the plastic, or when they recycle the plastics, they produce a plastic filament, and they've got real-time monitoring that makes adjustment to control the diameter of that filament and make sure that they're producing a quality product. So that one, I think, is also slated to go to Space Station sometime here in the near future, and we'll be getting Refabricator back to take a look at that. Okay, let's go to chart 12. <clears throat> On-demand manufacturing of electronics. Uh, this is an area that has really grown in the past three or four years. Uh, we began with the, the simple, uh, well, it's not really simple, but the, the, sort of the heart of the activity at Marshall is the uh, Inscript 3D printer. And from that, we branched out to look at different types of centering technologies. We've done an awful lot of work on the development of, of different inks and the production of sensors. Um, all different kinds of sensors. Um, the one that's shown there is a CO2 sensor. We've also produced a carbon monoxide sensor, uh, ammonia, pressure, temperature, humidity, and in the area of inks, aluminum, aluminum 10, Inconel 718, uh, palladium, silver, and I think we have a total of 14 patents at least. Uh, five of those have been granted. I think nine of those are still in process, but an awful lot of work in ink development. And the whole idea is to produce sensors that you see on the right-hand side that protect the crew. <clears throat> and, and lately we've been focusing a lot on crew health and safety. You can see the, uh, the diagram of the AstraSense uh, sensor there on the right that we're developing with Netflix. And we hope to have a demonstration of that on Space Station uh, in 2024, early tech demo. Another is a cortisol sensor from Caltech that's shown in the bottom sensor. Uh, it's really a stress sensor for the astronauts. <clears throat> and all of these suites of instruments, again, go to 
reduce the logistics mass and also go to help astronauts and help the, the physicians monitor the health of the astronauts. Okay, let's move on to chart 13, please. Okay, now we're getting into the design database. What we want to do there ultimately is, is produce a catalog of parts, of designs for those parts, so that ultimately one day when an astronaut needs a certain part, uh, he won't have to call to the ground. He won't have to design it. He'll just go and look up the part in the catalog, push in the number that he needs, come back uh, a short time later, and the heart part will be ready for him to use. That's the vision for deep space applications. <clears throat> We've worked with Rice University and also Geosent to produce the database and, and put the structure together. Um, and I, I will talk a little bit uh, about this and the success that we've had moving forward just in, in additive manufacturing. Um, <clears throat> kind of a side story here. Uh, the propulsion group at Marshall adopted additive manufacturing uh, with open arms. Uh, they understood the capabilities that that gave them and designed uh, new capabilities that you couldn't get with conventional machining. And they've gone so far as to produce uh, several different engines with up to, I think the, I think the number's up to 90% of the, uh, of the weight of the engine is additively manufactured parts. Uh, the environmental control and life support system team was a little bit different. Um, they were focusing and they were given specific instructions for space station and deep space exploration to focus on reliability of their system. So when we talked to them about the potential use of in-space manufacturing to produce spare parts, uh, spare parts and reliability don't actually go hand in hand. So since they were they were really focused, uh, per Gerstenmeyer's direction, to develop high reliability parts, they weren't really interested in in-space manufacturing. However, we continued uh, to, to talk to those folks and, and try to explain the benefits and, and overcoming the culture of, here's my part, show me how additive manufacturing can produce my part, to another perspective of, here's the function that your part has to perform. Now, design a part that does that function with this technology. And that's... Um, it's been a good discussion, and, and they're actually moving towards identifying parts that can be made from additive manufacturing, and those are being included in the database. So that, I think, is a, is a huge step forward for both in-space manufacturing and also the ECOS folks. Okay, let's go to chart 14 now. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the regolith printing on ISS is, is our newest activity. The contract was just signed earlier this spring with Maiden Space. They're going to convert one of their additive manufacturing facility uh, machines that has flown on orbit. Uh, it's now back on the ground. They're going to convert that with the, uh, the right nozzle and the right feed system and the right temperature control to be able to print uh, regular simulant, and this will be lunar regular simulant, with the low-density polyethylene binder. And you can see the uh, some demonstration trials that they've produced there and printing a column on the right-hand side with, uh, with the black material. Okay, let's go to chart 16. So where do we think this is going in the future? 
Well, we think this should go everywhere NASA goes in deep space exploration. And we think it should go there for a number of reasons. It will reduce the logistics mass, and we can't do everything. But I think we do need a study to understand just exactly what we can do and what we should be doing and prepare to go do that. There's still a culture change to be had there. Along the same lines that we have had the discussions with the environmental control and life support systems. We need to figure this into the standard operating procedure that we're not going to take a thousand spoons to Mars. We're going to reprint the spoons with our medical grade recycler every time we need a new spoon. And that's just a very simple minded result. There, there are many, many others, but we do need a focus study to understand what makes sense to print and what doesn't. The other benefit, as we've talked about, is recycling, recycling the packaging, or even better, make the packaging out of a common recyclable material. Hey, that's a concept. And then finally, all of this is to protect the astronauts and make sure that they have the capability to print a part that they might need to get them home on demand. So we think it should go to the Deep Space Gateway. We think it should go to the surface of the moon. We think it should go on Mars transit missions and also on Mars surface operations in the future. So that's where we think in-space manufacturing should be headed. Okay, now let's talk about additive construction at Marshall. And, and here I want to thank, uh, again, Mike Fisk and uh, Dr. Jennifer Edmondson for their contributions. And th this is a long packet. I've taken maybe eight or ten or so charts out of it. But there was a lot of work that has happened at Marshall in the last 15 years. And then I hit the highlights. Okay, let's go to chart 21. I mentioned earlier the ISFAR, In-Space Fabrication and Repair uh, program element that we had back in the 2004-2005 timeframe. And one of those elements was habitat structure. Uh, we did, we actually initiated an awful lot of work on the habitat structures and on ISFAR. Uh, I'm sorry, are we, Corky, are we actually on slide 17? Well, let me see. I think we are. Okay, you said 21. Thank you. Oh, my mistake. Yes, please, folks, we're on chart 17. It should say at the top, background. Habitat structure was one of the elements in ISFAR. Okay. So for, for the habitat structures area, uh, we did a lot in evaluating materials, um, trade studies, construction technologies, processing technologies. Uh, we got to the point where we could actually uh, melt glass from the lunar simulant and create fibers for reinforcement or big pieces for, for rebar reinforcement. Uh, we looked at uh, inflatable domes, and that's actually a technology that has been used on the Earth. And we started working with uh, Baroque Koshnevis at the University of uh, Southern California in his uh, very early beginnings of his contour crafting uh, business that he was small business he runs today. Okay, chart 18, please. And this is just one of the series of trade studies that we ran on different habitat structures and integrated concepts. Um, obviously, raw regolith is the most plentiful building material. 
Uh, you can see in the graphics there's also uh, lava tunnels that are there. And we've had discussions with one of our architectural partners uh, within the last couple of months about how we might build structures in a lava tube on the moon. Uh, re reinforce. I think we got an open mic. Excuse me. Uh, reinforced concrete. Uh, that is the system that we eventually came to, so I'm not going to say too much about that now. Uh, deployable metal structures. <clears throat> um, really, in, in the, well, let's go back and talk about the geodesic dome kind of in the middle. Um, this was a technology that was developed with an inflatable dome, and you sprayed a cementitious material over the top of it and then deflated the dome. Or, or the, uh, the the inflatable liner, and you were left with a with a dome structure. And like I said earlier, that's actually been used for structures um, here on Earth. Uh, the right hand photo really shows more of what I would call a a, a traditional looking habitat, uh, two stories. Uh, we, we've seen them both horizontally and vertically with with two stories, but that's what I'd call a more traditional uh, NASA style habitat. And then down below in the middle is an artist rendering of a gantry system. Uh, that is really representative of the concert crafting activity and the machine that we worked with uh, Professor Coach Nevis. Now, this one is obviously uh, much more advanced. It's a vision that we had for the future. But, again, that's the concept that we went with. And so in, in 2004, we began to work with uh, Dr. Coach Nevis. He sent us his uh, what he called his 2D system. Uh, we gave him funding for a larger scale-up system, and you can see uh, the very beginnings of that in the lower right-hand side, lunar contour crafting. Uh, I've mentioned it before, but the vision for space exploration came along, and most of the activities under the Office of Biological and Physical Research were, were terminated within the next couple of years, and, and this activity, again, was, was one of the victims. Okay, let's go now to, that is chart 20, <clears throat> ACES and ACTIN. Now let's go to chart 21. In 2014 and 15, uh, Dr. Koshnevis again reached out to us and informed us that the Corps of Engineers in, in Champaign had reached out to him and they were very interested in his technology. Uh, when we talked to the Corps of Engineers with uh, Dr. Coach Nevis, we found that we had a common vision. And this is the Corps of Engineers' vision for the project. It is the capability to print custom-designed expeditionary structures on demand in the field using locally available materials. For the NASA version of that shared vision, we would like the capability to present print custom-designed exploration structures on demand on extraterrestrial surfaces, that's our field, using locally available materials, and that would be the soils on the moon and on Mars. Now, at this point in time, NASA was going to Mars, so most of the work that we did was focused on Martian simulant-based materials. We call our version of this additive construction with mobile emplacement, ACME, and the Corps of Engineers called theirs automated construction of expeditionary structures, and that's ACES. Okay, let's go to the next chart, please. And that is chart 22. 
Okay. We had a lot of partners that worked with us, uh, most notably Caterpillar, and they will come into play later on in one of the centennial challenges that I'll talk about at the end of this section. Uh, the funding was from NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate and also from the Corps of Engineers. And we also work with multiple universities, primarily in the area of materials development. Okay, the first task for the ACME-1 system was to convert the 2D system that Professor Koshnevis uh, sent to us. And by the way, I'm on chart 23. And you can see that system there in the upper right. We did experiments uh, to develop the control system to print some simple shapes and also some, some not too simple shapes, as you can see with the, uh, with the beehive hut structure down in the lower right. But it, it was, uh, it was again a learning process for us to convert that from a 2D to a 3D system, uh, working with the constituents and a lot of different variables. So this was a very good learning experience for us. Let's go to chart 24. ACME-1 was the batch system, and in order to print anything of size uh, without wearing out Mike Fisk, who was off busy developing the batches to feed the system, we needed more of a continuous feed system. So we bought a mixer and a pump, and we added an accumulator to the system so we, we could keep the pump running in times when they either had to slow the system down or to cut it off in case you were making a door frame or a window frame. And we also did a lot more work on the control systems for fine positioning of the uh, of the nozzle. And those were the primary upgrades for going from ACME 1 to ACME 2. Okay. Now let's go to chart 25. The next step was a big one for us. At the time that we were working on our ACE, or on our ACME systems at Marshall, the Corps of Engineers was also working on their ACES system uh, in their labs at Champaign. Uh, they had gone so far as an ACES II to give them some experience with, you know, printing concrete, working on the aggregate size, working on the different materials that they would face uh, across the globe, and how that affected the mixes and the transition time and the control systems. A uh, lot of work going on with these different parameters, and they're all very, very critical. So our delivery to the Corps of Engineers was called ACES-3, and the idea there was to be able to uh, print a 16 by 32 B-hut. That was the demonstration article that they wanted. Uh, looking back on that now, one of the lessons learned was we took a huge leap in going from ACME-2 to ACES-3. You can see the lab scale there in the upper right, and the next version that we produced is the one down there in the lower right. You can see the gantry system outlined there and surrounded by those buildings. So that was a large step for us. Now let's go to chart 26, please. Okay, Kennedy was a big supporter and involved in this activity. They developed the dry goods storage subsystem. Uh, they developed and integrated the liquid storage subsystem, and then those were coupled with the gantry system that we developed at Marshall that obviously moved ahead, uh, hose management, nozzle design and development. We'll show some more of those activities, and, and uh, Professor Coach Nevis was responsible for the, uh, for the nozzle design for us. And now let's go to chart 27. 
what you saw on the previous charts were artist renderings and graphics, and now this is the real hardware on site at the Corps of Engineers facility. Uh, these are pictures of the gantry system, of the hose management system, and also of the control system and the movement uh, mobility system on the upper right-hand side. Next chart would be chart 28. And these are pictures of the actual nozzle hardware that Professor Koshnevis designed, both the, uh, the, the uh, dispensing system for the nozzle and also the control and movement system from the, for the nozzle on the right-hand side. Pretty beefy hardware. And then finally, another shot uh, from a drone of the system that is assembled at the Corps of Engineers facility. Now you can see uh, the building in the upper right-hand corner. If you look right in front of that building to the right-hand side, you'll see some uh, large container. That That is actually the uh, dry goods storage system that Kennedy created. And then next to that in the smaller boxes are the uh, the liquids delivery system. So that's the entire system being worked on, ready for integration at the Corps of Engineers facility. And this activity ended in about 2018, and that was it until uh, we, we had a new project and NASA had a new initiative in 2000, excuse me, 2019. Now, before I get into the new initiative, I want to talk about the planetary materials because what I've described to you so far is really focused on Earth-based systems. The gantry, the feed system, the liquid system, those are all for Earth-based systems, and those are all Earth-based materials, basically Portland cement. Now, let's talk about the work that we did for the planetary materials for acne deposition. We did quite a bit of work with the binder materials and additives that were included for a number of different reasons, uh, as you can see there. Rheology control, crack mitigation, and those were combined with JSC-1A for a lunar simulant and JSC-1A for the Martian simulant. Again, at this time, we were going back to Mars. Not back to, excuse me, we are going to Mars. So we tested a number of different binder additive combinations with the Mars simulants because we had to understand how these materials would perform in a lunar environment. Most of the mechanical property testing we did was in a lunar, uh, I'm sorry, was for compression, but we also uh, did cast sun in a Martian environment, at least from the uh, from the vacuum standpoint, and and the the, uh, the samples mushroomed on us. So we learned that we have more activity that we have to do in this new program uh, because that was just uh, in the Marshall, uh, excuse me, the Martian level of vacuum. For the lunar vacuum, which we'll show on the next chart. That is chart 32 for the planetary environments and the lunar environment. You can see that there is a significant vacuum, everybody knows, on the surface of the moon. The Martian environment, relatively speaking, is, uh, is a walk in the park compared to the moon. The temperature extremes are not nearly as bad as they are on the moon. You have some atmosphere that you can use to create binders, um, and the gravity effects are not as, uh, are not as bad as they are on the moon. So again, Mars is a much easier environment to work with than the moon. Okay, the next chart, and I'm not going to get into these into any great detail, 
The horizontal line across there shows the uh, the values that are needed for residential construction at uh, 2.5 KSI, commercial construction at 4 KSI, and the goal that we had set for for Acme at about 5 KSI. You can see the uh, the Portland cements that were combined with both the lunar and the Martian simulants. I did a pretty good job. They they generally after 28 day cure. Uh, certainly, they did exceed the residential. Uh, they're up on par for commercial and after 28-day cure. Uh, some of those even did meet the uh, the ACME standard. That was a goal. We also looked at uh, magnesium oxide as a binder. Uh, those materials didn't work very well. And we also looked at uh, calcium sulfoaluminates. And those performed quite well for both the uh, both the Martian and the lunar regolith, and that actually is one of the candidate systems we're looking at now as we move forward into the uh, end of the next program. And finally, uh, I did want to mention the uh, centennial challenge that was going on at the same time that we were doing ACES and ACME. Uh, this was the uh, 3D printed Mars Hab challenge, and it ran over a period of years that ended uh, last year in May started back in the 2014-15 timeframe. And I mentioned Caterpillar earlier as one of our partners. Uh, Caterpillar turned out to be the corporate sponsor for the uh, NASA 3D printed head challenge. And the, uh, the the competition prints were actually done there in their test facility in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, Search, <clears throat> Search was one of the early design winners. They won the first phase of the design competition. And they were also a winner, although I didn't show it on the chart, uh, they were a winner in the final phase of the design competition. Uh, Foster and Partners won the won the second with a polymer binder with a basalt reinforcement, and AI Space Factory won the uh, printing competition again with uh, a very similar material uh, to that that was used by uh, Foster and Partners and Branch Technology. And Penn State uh, did a valiant job; they came in second uh, both times. Good group of students, and, man, they really worked hard on, on what they did to come in second place. Uh, one other that I'll mention was uh, ICON, and I'll say more about them in a minute. They were. Uh, they did qualify to be on the floor for the final competition, uh, but they're a small business, and they really uh, had to tend to business, so they shipped their Vulcan machine to Colorado School of Mines, and they were not actually able to get it out on the floor. Okay, let's move forward to the next chart, and that is chart 35. In summer of 2019, in response to the administration's announcement that we would go back to the moon with boots on the moon by 2024 and a sustainable presence by 2028, Space Technology Mission Directorate formed the Lunar Surface Innovation Initiative to address the technology needs that would be required really for the second phase of Artemis. And, and that's really what I'm going to talk about on the next chart. Uh, this is pretty much the standard uh, STMD NASA chart that they use to, to give a, a high-level overview of Artemis Phase 2. And that's when we really begin looking forward to Mars. We have longer sorties. We have mobility systems. We have hopefully habitats and landing pads. And again, we we do technology demonstrations of these capabilities that we will need on the Martian surface. Because one of the requirements of the LSII projects 
are to look forward to Mars for the technology demonstrations that we do on the moon. So moving to the next chart, chart 37. Okay, chart 37 is an overall picture of many of the technologies that STMD is investing in. The Lunar Surface Initiative has many of those capabilities that you see on the right-hand side of this chart. They're responsible for sustainable power, dust mitigation, in-situ resource utilization, surface excavation and construction, which is where we fit, and extreme access, extreme environments, being able to survive the environments on the moon, the cold, the lunar night, surviving and being able to operate again in the lunar day and have access to multiple locations on the lunar surface for prospecting. Okay, moving to chart 38. Impact is Moon to Mars Planetary Autonomous Construction Technology. And that was a proposal that we submitted to STMD earlier this year, and we received multi-year funding to move forward to develop capabilities to construct uh, landing pads, habitat shelters, roadways, berms, blast shields, whatever you can construct with an autonomous construction system on the lunar surface. And notice I mentioned autonomous and not necessarily additive. We're looking at all different types of construction capabilities, some that we looked at back in 2005, uh, inflatable domes and how they might work with additive construction capabilities, or using bags filled with regolith that might provide a blast shield. So we're looking across the field at all of those. Impact has three interrelated elements, Olympus, and that's the autonomous construction hardware, construction feedstock materials development, and microwave center and construction capabilities. And when you think about microwave, it's, it's the best of all possible worlds if you can make it work because you don't have to take anything but the system. You use the regolith that you have there. You simply center the regolith, and you create a structure. That's our hope. That's our vision. That's what we're working toward. But we'll see. We'll see. We have two phases of these activities. Phase one involves Olympus and the materials development. There we're focusing on developing, down-selecting, and demonstrating prototype hardware for the materials deposition head and the mobility system, which moves that head around your print area. The microwave system, which we call Microwave Centering Construction Capabilities, MSCC, that will take the various technologies they have to the TRL, uh, TRL-6. We have some preliminary options for Phase 2, and those involve either, well, they all involve flight projects, either a small clips lander or a subscale um, lander, a two-metric ton lander, uh, they were working with, uh, with Blue Origin called Blue Moon to do a real technology demonstration for a subscale lunar surface landing pad. And then the microwave system, uh, if we're successful to get that TRL-6, would head straight to a flight system. Okay, quickly, <clears throat> I mentioned when we began this activity, uh, we started with a discussion with Search, one of the uh, – Centennial Challenge winners. And we came up with a Venn diagram of 
common capabilities that they would need for their architectural and construction activities and that we would need on the lunar surface. We brought in different partners, new partners, ICON, they're a small construction company out of uh, Austin, Texas, and also three different DOD organizations. So we did the same exercise with them. What are the common key functional capabilities that ICON needs as a commercial system and DOD needs for their forward operating basis? And we came up with a list of about a dozen. Most all of those have been identified by NASA, uh, by the uh, system capability leadership teams in both operations uh, for advanced materials, structures and assembly, and also, excuse me, uh, manufacturing, and also ISRU. <clears throat> These are also things that the Air Force needs when you think about it. Now, there's some here that we don't really need. Um, a software design platform. We don't need to have multiple structures stored in a design database for the construction activities. Uh, we don't necessarily need uh, ease of operations because they're going to train soldiers to run uh, their equipment. But most of these we do need. Ours are more extreme in, in terms of the environmental range uh, than the Air Force's needs and more extreme in terms of mass, trans or mass reduction and transportability but they're still in the same general area. Okay, next chart would be chart 40. And again, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, to run through all of this with you. It just shows the partners uh, that we have on board with us, uh, minority serving institutions in, in Drake State that have a cooperative agreement with us. Uh, ICON, we got through through uh, small business with our partners with the Air Force and AFWorks. Uh, ICON brought on board the Bjark Ingels Group, which is an internationally recognized architectural firm to do concept development so that those concepts would inform ICON in making their engineering decisions on the hardware that they have to design and produce for the manufacturing system. CERT is doing exactly the same thing uh, for them. They're coming up with concepts and designs to inform the, uh, the engineering decision. Blue Origin is also very interested in a landing pad, and we're working with them on a mission concept study uh, that we hope to hear from later this week and start taking steps to move toward that because we think that's the first structure that will actually be made on the lunar surface. Uh, the reason that you're not seeing any of the partners named on microwave center and construction capabilities is that we do not have contracts in place with those folks yet, uh, so we're not allowed to... Uh, to list their names, but as you can see, there are a number of partners that are listed there and that will be supporting us. And these folks have history, again, back in the 2005 and 6 time frame when we were going to the moon to have experience microwaving regolith and, and, and one even formed their own company with experience in microwaving these materials. So again, we've, we've pulled together what I consider a dream team in architects, and ICON, and they've printed the only permitted structures, homes, uh, in the United States and also in Mexico. Okay, next chart. ICON can, or IMPACT cannot be successful unless a lot of other projects funded by STND are successful. For example, we don't intend to develop our own power system. Uh, we don't intend to develop an excavator. Uh, we don't intend to develop necessarily a site-to-site -site mobility system. We are depending on other projects to provide those capabilities for us, and we made it very clear we're building a construction system 
We also are reaching out to the folks that are leading these other activities to understand where they are, what their development paths look like, and to make them aware, number one, that we're dependent on them for their help and our being successful. And number two, they keep us on the radar and talk back and forth with us as they continue to make developments and progress further. Okay, now we're on slide 42, and I'm just about wound up. I've got one more chart. Um, four messages here. One is ICON, uh, although it says September 1, we didn't make it. You'll see a lot of green work to the left. ICON has invested over $2 million of its own money. And this is not through the SBIR, through the matching funds. They've developed their own funds, uh, and they've been doing work even in COVID in their, in their garages, bench tops, and now they've moved back into their facility. So they're moving out ahead of us. The second thing is, um, we're working with the hardware and the materials development in concert. That is a lesson learned that we had from ACES and ACME. They must be developed together. And then finally, phase one ends in the middle of 2022, which is when we will have prototype demonstrations of the material deposition head and also the uh, mobility system. Finally, this is the development phase for MSCC. There are a number of elements that they have to work. Uh, one is a horn design, thermal control for the horn design that goes from cryogenic temperatures all the way up to melting of regolith and that is a huge temperature span. They have thermal management uh, problems that they've got to solve. Uh, they're also working with a solar concentrator as another source of heat. And then we also have to work with, uh, need to work with Kennedy Space Center because they are working with the environments and also, excuse me, with the excavators and the site prep activity. And the microwaves couple differently to the regolith if it's compacted. And we have to understand how well the microwaves will couple and what the impacts are uh, with uh, the site prep for the regulars. And finally, thank you. I hope you all have enjoyed this. That's all I have for you today. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. And hey, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq.com.